Hi, this is Jan Miyazaki, the host of the Wednesday 8 o'clock buzz. Thank you for tuning into WORT. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a donation at wortfm.org slash donate. So coming up is an interview with Professor Clarence Lusain that I did earlier in the week. Uh, Professor Lusain um, uh, teaches political science and international affairs at Howard University. Um, he's also Professor Emeritus at the School for International Service at American University. He's the author of many books, including The Black History of the White House and Hitler's Black Victims, The Experiences of Afro-Asians, Africans, Afro-Europeans, and African-Americans during the Nazi era. Um, Clarence Hussein is a longtime board member of the um, at the Institute for Policy Studies um, as well. So he had a piece posted at Tom Dispatch on um, December f- uh, 5th, and the title, Make America Fascist Again, or MAFA, the future if Donald Trump uh, returns to the Oval Office. So um, here's Clarence Lusain. Yep, so uh, thank you for having me. So I started the article by focusing on the incarceration of people of Japanese ancestry. That included uh, Japanese Americans as well as uh, people of Japanese ancestry. And what I wanted to point out is that while there's been a lot of I'll focus on the language of Trump harking back to Hitler uh, and focusing on fascism in Germany, we need to pay attention to our own history. And that in the U.S., when you look back to the 20s and 30s and 40s uh, and 50s, there were pro-fascist elements in the U.S. that had significant influence with members of Congress. They had popular um, support. And then one of the great manifestations of uh, this uh, this attack and this authoritarian uh, thrust was what happened to uh, people of Japanese ancestry. But the context of that is that in the 20s and then in the 30s, there were pro-fascist movements in the U.S. Uh, in support of Mussolini uh, after he took over in Italy, in support of Uh, the Nazis after they took over in Germany, and then homegrown fascists. Uh, Some of that manifested uh, in the 1940s in the movement known as America First. And America First, as a term, uh, emerged in uh, the teens. It emerged under uh, President Woodrow Wilson, but it took a right-wing turn uh, in the 20s, first under the Ku Klux Klan, uh, and then under... Uh, fascists as they begin to uh, emerge. So how mainstreamed or how marginalized were these pro-fascist groups early on? So they became uh, very mainstream at one point. Uh, This is something that uh, Rachel Maddow documents in in her book that came out recently uh, called Peril, where she demonstrated, and so have other scholars and researchers, that this movement Uh, Some of it financed by uh, the Nazis, uh, and a lot of it certainly supported by the Nazis, including um, members of the Nazi Party who were sent to the U.S., and they targeted members of Congress. And so they had members of Congress who supported them 
through a process called franking. Uh, franking was the ability of members of Congress to mail items free. Uh, I worked on Capitol Hill back in the uh, 90s, and franking still was a thing. And so any member of Congress could send out pieces of mail without any cost. So essentially, that was the uh, you know social media operation of the time where you could get the word out uh, broadly without any cost. And so there were members of Congress who were linked to some of these pro-fascist organizations, America First and some of the other ones, uh, who did exactly that. And they would send out uh, broad pieces of anti-Semitic uh, kind of propaganda, pro-Nazi, uh, pro-Germany kind of propaganda. Uh, and that went on uh, for a number of years uh, during the war. The second rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. Can you talk more about what we know about those origins? Uh, great question. So uh, the Ku Klux Klan, of course, started right after the Civil War, uh, founded in Pulaski, Tennessee, by uh, ex-Confederates. Uh, however, there was a move against the Ku Klux Klan, uh, principally coming from, at the, at the congressional level, uh, from uh, radical Republicans. And they passed a number of laws and acts, uh, some of which are relevant today, that's known as the Ku Klux Klan Acts. Uh, to uh, go after these uh, organizations, because it was the Ku Klux Klan, but there were others who specifically targeted uh, African Americans, uh, both in terms of trying to prevent them from voting, uh, but also from having businesses, from going to school. Uh, so there was a war, and essentially the Klan was, uh, after a number of years, was uh, not completely destroyed, but more or less uh, it ended. Uh, but there was a rise of the Klan again in the 19, early 19, 1915 or so. Uh, one manifestation of that was the uh, movie Birth of a Nation, uh, which premiered or had one of its debuts at the White House uh, when uh, Woodrow Wilson was president. And he was the president that reinstituted segregation in the federal government uh, when he came into office. Uh, he hosted the film uh, Birth of a Nation, and then that film uh, became uh, extremely popular around the country. It was one of the first films made, popular films made. Uh, and the Klan arose with that, uh, and it targeted immigrants, it targeted African Americans, it targeted Jews, it targeted Catholics. And uh, some of the slogans under which the Klan mobilized were America First and Fighting for the American Dream, uh, those kind of sort of nebulous, patriotic-sounding kinds of terms, but in fact were very racialized uh, in their meaning. And so the Klan, in its second manifestation, uh, was national. It wasn't like during the first Klan, it was basically in the South. In the second rise of the Klan, it was in Indiana, it was in Ohio, it was in California, it was in Wyoming, and it was in New York City. And one of the uh, stories I tell in this article is how the memorial parade uh, that happened in New York City in 1927 uh, turned into a Klan riot, basically. 
so Memorial Day was a really big deal uh, for the city. And all of the different bureaus, uh, Staten Island, Queens, Brooklyn, all would have separate Memorial Day parades. And apparently these parades were open pretty much to anybody who could figure a way to kind of get in formally. So in Manhattan, there was a parade and there were a pro Mussolini fascists who were in that parade. Uh, there were anti Mussolini uh, Italians who were in opposition. So that became violent. And uh, two of the pro Mussolini fascists were actually killed. In Brooklyn, or in Queens, there was another parade, and part of the official Memorial Day parade was a contingent of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, a large contingent of the Ku Klux Klan, something like 1,400. Um, there were a lot of people who came out in opposition to the Klan, uh, and it ended up being a riot of sorts. Uh, and for whatever reason, the only the police only arrested like seven people. Uh, five of them were clearly uh, Ku Klux Klan members. A sixth person was kind of an accident, they said. And the seventh person was Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father. Uh, it's never been totally clear why he's out there, although it doesn't appear he's out there protesting the Klan. Uh, but in any case, uh, he was arrested. But the, the importance of that whole uh, story is that in that period, the Ku Klux Klan pro-fascist organizations were uh, mainstreaming. And they weren't just out on the fringe, but they had thousands and thousands of members. They had support. Uh, in many ways, they had official kinds of links and ties. So how big did it get? Because by um, 1940, you have... Um, hundreds of thousands of members. Right. So the Klan uh, grew tremendously. Uh, and uh, across the country, uh, in places like Ohio, for example, in Detroit, uh, in a number of places, uh, there were uh, elected members uh, in state legislatures and local areas uh, who were openly uh, members of the Klan. Uh, parallel to that were the uh, pro-fascist organizations that were growing, uh, centering around people like Charles Lindbergh, for example. Uh, Charles Lindbergh was famous and became very pro-Nazi. Uh, he went to Germany. They were feted by Hitler and the Nazis. Uh, and then you had Father Charles Scotland, uh, who was uh, based in Detroit. Uh, who was also uh, pro-fascist. Uh, pro and so you had uh, thousands and thousands of members and millions and millions of people being reached uh, through the radio. So it was not an insignificant uh, movement. Uh, the America First part of it, uh, particularly at the end of the 30s, uh, was focused on keeping the U.S out of the war, out of World War II, uh, because what the Germans had concluded rightfully was that if the U.S. did not enter, then they would be able to conquer particularly all of Western Europe. Uh, and so the movement in the U.S., its goal was to keep the U.S. out. And 
more or less uh, was having some success if you look at, you know, kind of poll data and where people were uh, up until Pearl Harbor. So when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, that pretty much was a game changer. Uh, America first went into deep decline, uh, and the fascist movement in the U.S. didn't disappear, uh, but, it, by the, but of course then it was, was marginalized. Now, to me, what's significant is, given all that history of America first, it's been appropriated now by the MAGA movement. And many of the Trump uh, veterans from the Trump campaign, the Trump White House, are engaging now in a number of organizations. Uh, some started before Trump left office, but some since he left office, uh, going by the name America First. So, for example, America First Legal is the organization started by uh, Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller was the uh, immigration czar uh, for Trump, and he created this organization that they call the Alternative to ACLU, uh, meaning that we're going to go as far to the right as we can in trying to uh, push public policy. Uh, you've got American First Policy Initiative. You've got American First PAC. So you've got all of these organizations that are rigidly tied uh, to the MAGA movement, but they are linked under this banner of America First, which, again, kind of is put as a patriot-founding kind of meme, but underneath it is the kind of xenophobic, racist, kinds of policies that not only we saw when Trump was in office, but what they're projecting they're going to do if they come back. Say more about this. You write the proliferation of America First groups run by former Trump staffers and supporters is daunting. Can you talk about the America First Policy Institute? Yep. So uh, one of the major ones uh, of the these groups that have started the American Policy America First Policy Institute, and this is run by Linda McMahon. Uh, she headed up the Small Business Administration uh, under Trump, and I think she was the former uh, executive director of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, something along those lines. Uh, but uh, her group, uh, as well as these others have gotten funding from the Koch brothers, from some of these billionaires, these right-wing uh, billionaires uh, who have aligned with the MAGA movement uh, to push them. Uh, and so they're engaged in developing these policy initiatives on everything from education to administration to labor, uh, along with some of the older groups like Alex, the so they're engaging in that kind of policy development. Uh, you got America First uh, PAC, uh, which is uh, another one of these policy organizations. This one was founded by uh, Kelly Ward, who uh, was the head of uh, the Arizona Republican Party, uh, who's in trouble now because she was also engaged in the uh, fake electors. Uh, plot uh, that Trump and them tried to carry out. Uh, then you got really out there on the far right, the America First uh, Foundation, and this is the uh, uh, the extreme conservative organization uh, founded by Nick Fuentes. 
Uh, America First Foundation uh, has an annual conference uh, that they put in juxtaposition to CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, which they see is actually too moderate. Uh, and so they have their alternative conference, uh, and they've had people then like Margaret Taylor Greene and, you know, some of the real extremists, uh, Paul Gozar, some of those folks uh, have come uh, and presented. But they, again, they're all under this uh, banner that has some resonance uh, in parts of the country that are uh, anti-immigrant, that are xenophobic, and that are the base for uh, the Trump uh, movement. You say that, in fact, they've become a thinly veiled cover for revised and expansive contemporary version of white nationalism. Can you say more about that? Oh, absolutely. So a lot of the uh, criticism uh, that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, uh, actually that's a month or two, uh, about Trump and the language that he's used uh, in rallies and on his social media uh, where he talks about vermin, he talks about the country being polluted, uh, the country being poisoned, the blood, the blood of the country being poisoned, and uh, rightfully, uh, uh, researchers and, and commentators have pointed out how that's very much tied to uh, the language that was used by uh, the Nazis. But it's also the language that has been used historically in the U.S. by white nationalists and white supremacist movement. Um, one example that I give is uh, in 1923, uh, um, there was a Klan leader, a very famous Klan leader named uh, Hiram Evans. Uh, and he gave a speech, and he specifically talked about the polluting streams of pollution from abroad, meaning that you had immigrants who were coming to the country who, as Trump said, are poisoning the mainstream. So this language is uh, the language of white nationalism is the language of racial hierarchy. And I think Trump probably did tell the truth that he never read Mein Kampf. Uh, he is the most unread person ever. Uh, so I think that's probably true. Uh, I know that, you know, his ex-wife, one of his former wives, said that he kept a book of Hitler's speeches, but it's not even clear he read those. But his instincts, his authoritarian and fascist instincts leads him in this direction, and then he absolutely has people around him who know this history. So Steve Bannon, Sebastian Gorka, Steve Miller, uh, all of these people are not ignorant like Trump, of this history, and they have uh, figured out how to weaponize it in a way in which it fits in what uh, Trump is trying to do, and the framework of uh, going uh, uh, building this white nationalist, Christian nationalist uh, movement in the U.S. that he hopes will return him to the White House. Now, you write, it's important to keep this history of fascism in America in mind since Donald Trump and his MAGA associates 
are planning to emulate it on a grand scale in a second administration. What are you talking about there? So what we've seen uh, uh, most prominent is a document from uh, the Heritage Foundation called Project 2025. Uh, that's a 900-page book, basically, that outlines in rigid detail uh, all of the changes that the far right wants to make uh, if it comes back into government. Uh, it basically goes through every government department, every agency. Uh, it goes into, you know, what kind of policies would be needed uh, that would not have to go through Congress, how to get around the courts. So it's a, it's a blueprint. It's an outline uh, of what they're uh, planning to do. And, again, they're not attempting by any stretch to hide what tr they're, they're trying to do. Uh, Trump tried some of this in his first term, but uh, they were, you know, fairly incompetent and uh, made, you know, lots and lots of mistakes, and there were more uh, obstacles. But they're trying to get around that this time. So they're looking at, you know, bringing back the Muslim ban, uh, revoking visas for foreign students who dare to protest, going after DACA, the Direct Deferred Action for uh, Children's Arrival Program, uh, more and more restrictions on uh, anybody seeking refugee status or asylum seeker status, uh, and again, you know, reconstructing these uh, prisons uh, that they, you know, they're kind of calling camps, but they really are. Uh, prisons. And I think that's just the beginning. Uh, they're going to attempt to purge uh, throughout the federal government. Uh, anyone they feel uh, is not loyal, uh, they're going to put in their people. Uh, they're going to uh, continue to try to uh, uh, dominate the federal judiciary uh, with uh, Trumpish uh, conservative judges. Uh, so they're pretty clear. Uh, Project 2025 is just one. All of those America First uh, organizations I mentioned, they're developing policy uh, initiatives. Uh, there's some others coming from some other uh, uh, right-wing organizations. So they have plans in place uh, for what they're going to do uh, day one. Uh, and uh, what's probably less stated is that uh, – it is hard to see that they will want to give up power after four years, uh, Trump in particular. And so uh, I think they will also be looking for ways in which trying to get around uh, the 22nd Amendment, you know, that Trump can't stay in office more than one term if he ever gets back in. Uh, and I want to circle back um, first to the idea of these new prisons or camps for migrants uh, near the border with Mexico. So we're not talking about Trump being against all immigrants, right? They're just a particular kind of immigrant. Right. Can you say more about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So whenever uh, Trump says immigrant, whenever he's talking to his base about immigrants, the wink, wink nod on this is immigrants of color, right? People coming from the global south. This is not people coming from Canada. These are not people coming from... Sweden, uh, and as Trump said in one most recently, he was more explicit when he said he meant Asia, he meant Africa, uh, he meant the Americas. People. 
about? So, uh, so the uh, and this is a good point that you're you're making. So, uh, part of who they're articulating that they're uh, mobilizing the base around is who they think is the most easiest common enemy. So uh, immigrants, 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 and again, immigrants of color. But they're not going to stop there. And when Trump talks broadly about this uh, enemy within, he is not just talking about immigrants. He's talking about a whole range of uh, communities from black community, Latino community, LGBT community, people who are organizing around climate issues. All of these are seen as against the Trump agenda. And so the language that they're using is to not only dehumanize these communities, calling them vermin and all the rest of that, but it also lays the foundation for attacks on these communities that justifiably, if you got vermin, if you got poisoners, if you got people out to destroy you, then you're justified to do anything to stop that. And so that's the foundation uh, that they're laying out. And Trump clearly understands this. So when he talks about uh, freeing the people who were uh, attacked, who attacked uh, the Capitol on January 6th, this is not about some misguided justice. This is political violence on my behalf will not be stopped. And if you get in trouble on this, I will take care of you. So this is the message that's being sent. And we see this every single day with his attacks on uh, people in the judiciary on these judges, on these people who work in these uh, offices, on prosecutors, on witnesses, right? All of this is very much consistent with, consistent with uh, what has emerged under dictatorships and under authoritarian states, and certainly what Trump and uh, his sort of warped existence uh, really has come to uh, embrace. And so it's really, really a dangerous moment. It seems that, at least from the last go-round, that the Proud Boys and Old Keepers and, you know, those organizations have been uh, upended. You know, their leadership uh, are in prison. You know, they're just kind of not around. But there are others that are emerging. Uh, who are going to be a bit smarter and uh, essentially wait for Trump to come back in the office if that happens uh, and get support from these uh, Republicans at the state level, and they will continue uh, kind of along these veins. Uh, I do think if Trump comes in, he will make a very symbolic gesture of letting some of these January 6th people Go because again, the signal they want to send is we will do anything to stop this enemy within. And just like it happened under McCarthyism, just like it happened under 
Jim Crow segregation, it will be extra legal uh, type of uh, unconstitutional uh, attacks on these communities. Clarence, the history of organized labor kind of laid on top of the rise of fascism historically. What do we have anything to learn from that? Because we are kind of going into a period of time where organized labor is getting stronger. Yeah, so this is really a, a, a really, really good insight. So organized labor uh, can be a very valuable counter uh, to the uh, anti-fascist movement. Uh, it certainly was during the 1930s uh, and the 1940s. Part of the articulation of the anti-fascist movement and the Ku Klux Klan during that period was against uh, Roosevelt and against the New Deal. And so as the literature talked about uh, Jews and it talked about immigrants, it also talked about the New Deal. And so there's a anti-progressive element that's also part of all of this. And so labor has a vested interest in being on the side that pushes back. And we know Trump's labor policies were horrific. He installed, you know, anti-labor people to run that department. And it's been under Biden, some of the most progressive, not only labor legislation, but support for labor. And what you, as you implied, we've seen in the last year or two, the success of labor uh, in a range of different areas, from Hollywood to the auto companies. Uh, many, many years ago, when I was younger, I worked at Ford Motor Company, uh, and I was part of UAW, and so I have a, a you know, a, a feel and bend towards labor, uh, and I hope that uh, labor will uh, see the uh, importance of uh, mobilizing not only for direct labor interests, but in a broader kind of democratic, uh, for a broader democratic kind of agenda, because uh, any movement towards authoritarianism and fascism is inherently uh, anti-labor. Uh, so I, I hope that that message on uh, that sentiment uh, will, will resonate with uh, labor organizers. And you're listening to an interview I did earlier this week with uh, Clarence Lussain, a professor of political science at Howard University, professor emeritus at the School for International Service at American University, author of many books, including The Black History of the White House, and also Hitler's Black Victims, Experiences of Afro-Germans, Africans, Afro-Europeans, and African-Americans during the Nazi era.